So today, we are beginning, we finished our Resident Alien series last week, and today we're just going to, we're beginning a, a, a short three-week series for Advent. And on the one hand, I'm going to do something this morning that I've never done in the life of this church. Uh, I usually, we usually as elders plan out sermon series that uh, very, are several weeks and oftentimes months in advance, and the same was true about this Advent series. We were planned months in advance, uh, but this last week, uh, we sort of totally changed the plan. As we were praying and, and thinking and studying the scriptures, uh, it seemed that God was directing me and us uh, a different way. And so this series that we're going to preach the next couple of weeks is much more of the burden of my heart and our heart as elders for this church. But in many ways, this Sunday is like every other Advent sermon we've ever had, because our tradition at the Gathering Church is to spend the Advent season reflecting, and reflecting how the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us in the last year. In fact, it's the tradition of the Christian church throughout the ages to meditate during this Advent season on on what the incarnation and the person, the work, and the mission of Jesus Christ means to us. What does it mean for us today as we prepare to celebrate the Advent of Christ our Savior? And how does that change us? And how has it changed us in the last year? How has the good news, the gospel, the incarnation of the Son of God changed us in the last year? Are we being more conformed to the image of Jesus than we were the year before? And it's good to reflect on that. It's good for us to reflect on how the gospel has changed us because the gospel... The gospel is a word that encapsulates the story of God redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. We were far from him, in bondage to sin, without hope in this world, under the holy and righteous wrath of God, enslaved to the devil. But Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, fully man, fully God, stepped into our world, the world he had made, and he changed everything. He lived the life that we should have done in obedience to God, and he died the death that we deserve to die in our disobedience to God. He broke the chains of slavery to the devil. He freed us from bondage to sin, rescued us from the wrath of God, and we are now called the beloved of God. And this good news should change us. It's not just a message that should convert us. It's a message that should change us from our first day to our last The gospel of Jesus Christ is the beginning and end of all of our lives as Christians. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at a short series that we're just calling the Ministry of Jesus. The Ministry of Jesus. And we're going to look at three aspects of his ministry and ask and answer the question, at least ask the question, am I more like Jesus in this regard in the last year than I was in the year prior? We're going to ask, has the good news of the gospel, the good news that God became a man, has this message and reality taken root in my heart in a deeper way this last year? And this morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are the poor. So if you have your Bible, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for this Advent season, God. Lord, we long for the appearing of the Son of God. We live in that age between when he appeared the first time and when he will appear the second. And Advent increases our hope and expectation for that second appearing. And Lord, we long to look into the scriptures and we long to meditate and reflect on how the good news, your good news, your gospel has confronted us and rebuked us and how it's encouraged us and how it's comforted us, Lord. Help us these next few weeks as we prepare to celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God on Sunday morning, December 25th, Lord. We pray that this season would be a time where we can slow down and reflect. We pray that the distractions of the world would grow dim during this time. We pray that we would um, long and hope for the coming of Jesus Christ and for his life and his ministry and his mission to be more manifest in our lives and hearts. We long for it, God, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So blessed are the poor. So one of the aspects of the ministry of Jesus was Jesus' concern for the poor. And I'll start here with a fairly long quote from Jonathan Edwards that I'll sort of unpack as we go here. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he said this, and he's speaking on this text, and also on Leviticus 23, which we'll get to in a moment. He says, where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more abrupt and urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? Now, one preacher reminded me as we were thinking about Jonathan Edwards is that all preachers at times are hyperbolic, okay? All preachers at times are hyperbolic. You've probably heard me say countless times, this is the most important sermon in the Bible, this is the most important text in the Bible, but not Jonathan Edwards. If there was ever a man that was precise and careful with his words, it was Jonathan Edwards. So with that in mind, listen to it again. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more abrupt and urgent manner than the command to give to the poor. In Edward's mind, it was the most significant command to the Christian. He goes on. He says, It is mentioned in Scripture not only as a duty, but a great duty. Indeed, it is generally acknowledged to be a duty to be kind to the needy. But by many, it seems not to be looked upon as a duty of great importance. However, it is mentioned in the scriptures as one of the greatest and most essential duties of a Christian. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? 
Edwards continues here, to love mercy as mentioned as one of the three great things that are the sum of all religion. He says, so it is mentioned by the Apostle James as one of two things wherein pure and undefiled religion consists. As the Apostle James tells us, religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father to this, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Edwards quotes one more time. He says, so Christ tells us it is one of the weightier matters of the law. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. At least in Jesus' mind, there are weightier matters of the law. So again, the scriptures teach us again and again that it is more weighty and an essential thing than the attendance of the outward ordinances of worship. Hosea says, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus quotes that at least two times. He quotes it twice in Matthew's gospel. He says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says in Matthew 12, 7, he quotes it again. And if you have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. And ends the Edwards quote. So what's his point? His point is that there is nothing more clear in the scriptures than the command for Christians to care for the poor. It's not something for certain kind of people. It's not something that's based on one's giftedness. We often hide behind the caveat of that's not my gift. But this isn't one of those commands. If you have children, you're called to be a parent even if it's not your gift. And if you're a Christian, you're called to care for the poor. To be poor, let me give us this definition of what I mean by poor or poverty. To be poor is to have little or nothing of what the world values. To be poor means to have little or nothing of what the world values. Whether it's money or power or status or prestige or protection even. To be poor or to live in poverty is to have nothing or little that the world values values. And as a result of this, the world so often discards the poor because they don't have anything of value. Or the world eats up the poor. The world takes advantage of the poor. Now, what I think is probably maybe most challenging for us as a congregation and as a people is to think about the causes of poverty. Why does someone have little or nothing that the world values. This question has a complex answer in the scriptures because the scripture gives us several different kinds of reasons as to why someone is poor or in poverty. There's a matrix of reasons that the Bible gives us for the causes of poverty. However, I would imagine that the first one and the one that comes most often to our minds is this. It's their own fault. It's their own fault. They're poor because of bad decisions they've made. And the scriptures that come to our mind are categories like the sluggard. Proverbs 23 says, For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. They're poor because they're lazy. They're poor because they squandered it. And it is a biblical category. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true that we can kind, call this kind of reason for poverty a kind of moral failure, right? 
And we see, though, we see the other side of that coin that oftentimes hard work is what leads to prosperity, right? Throughout the Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 11 says, whoever works, with his, works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So absolutely, the Bible does give us a category of the reason that someone could be poor is because of their own failures, their own mistakes, their own laziness, But it's not the only way that the Bible talks about the source and the cause of poverty. In fact, I would contend, and I think the scriptures would contend, that it's not even the main reason that the Bible gives us for poverty. It's not even the main reason. Think about some of the categories that the Bible gives us. Things like natural disasters, famine, a disabling injury, flood, fire, etc. Or the category of oppression, The category of oppression is throughout the scriptures as to a reason why someone is poor in poverty. Things like loans with excessive interest. It's mentioned in the Proverbs and it's mentioned in the Law of Moses. Low wages. You ever notice that when when there are extreme disparities between the rich and the poor, between wealth and poverty, when those extreme disparities exist in the society, the prophets blame the rich. Think of Micah 2.2. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Or another place, the prophets go after the massive disparity in society. Amos chapter 5.11 says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses made of stone, but you shall not dwell in them, You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. In preparing this week, I was reading a couple different books, and one of them I was reading that I've referenced over the years is Tim Keller's book, Ministries of Mercy. And in sort of talking about the different categories that the Bible gives us for the reasons for poverty, he makes this claim. He says that at least 80% of the over 200 references in the poor don't refer to poverty as a result of having something and then lost it. He says at least 80% of the 200 references to the poor in the scriptures aren't talking about having poverty or having wealth and riches rather and then making a moral failure to lose it or squander it. Those categories do exist, as we've said a moment ago, but an overwhelming majority of the discussions of poverty don't deal in those categories. Let me give us a few examples. We'll dig down and and I'll expound a couple of them. One, One of the other reasons that the scriptures give us as a cause for poverty, and it's this. It's that circumstances cause behavior, not behavior causing circumstances. The circumstances are what lead to a behavior rather than the behavior leading to a circumstance. Okay, Think about that for a moment because we normally think that people are poor because they act a certain way. But the Bible seems to tell us that people act a certain way oftentimes because of their poverty. They act a certain way because they are poor and they have little or nothing. Proverbs 10, 15 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, 
The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Read that again. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, but the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Or another way you could say that is the poverty of the poor is their destruction. Their destruction is their poverty. Usually, the Bible talks about destruction as a result of one's behavior and actions. Destruction is almost everywhere that I can think of talking about in the scriptures as a result of someone's sin. Someone's sin brings about destruction into their life. But this is sort of a unique category, it seems. It seems that what this is saying is that the poverty, the circumstances in which they find themselves in, is what leads to their ruin. Look, think about this just practically as you walk through the streets in the city of Portland and Vancouver, Okay. Think about when you see uh, a group of maybe inner city uh, teenagers and they're acting foolishly. They're acting a particular way. And you think to yourself, when these kids grow up, they're not going to have the social skills. They're not going to have the moral skills. They're not going to have the behavioral skills. They're not going to have the relational skills to get a decent job and provide for their families. They won't be equipped intellectually. They won't have the job opportunities and so on and so on. Now, In that circumstance, can you see and do you see that so often their behavior is a result of their poverty and not the other way around? You know that some of them will rise above it if they work extremely hard and if they have uh, gracious and uh, opportunities given to them, but most of them won't. So ask yourself, did they choose to be born into that environment? Or to turn it on its head. Why do you have the opportunities that you have? Was it because you're a self-made man or woman? Or do you have or do I have the opportunities that I have because of the family, because of the era, because of the country that I was born into? Did I have the opportunity to go to school and go to graduate school and all these kinds of opportunities and to buy a home and to live the life I lived simply because I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps? No. No. So much of the life that we have and so much of the opportunities that we have are simply a matter of grace to us. They're because of the opportunities that have been given to us because of the families and the life and even the era that we've been born into. I've said this before, but you've ever marveled at the fact that you weren't born in 12th century Tibet? You could have been. You could have lived your entire life in utter poverty in a side of the world that the gospel had never even been brought to yet. But you were born in a part of the world, or at least came to a part of the world, where you could hear the good news of the gospel, where you could be forwarded opportunities, and so on. And do you see that oftentimes the wealth that we have is itself our strong city? Proverbs 10, 15, the first half of the verse. The wealth or the opportunities that have been given to us are what give us the circumstances to perpetuate a certain kind of behavior. Another example that's given with this sort of category, Proverbs 14, 20 says, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. I think that's again that category where the circumstances are dictating the outcome. It's the fact that he's in poverty that even his neighbors desert him and dislike him. Like Proverbs 19.4, same thing, says, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Even his friends leave him 
And you can think of these circumstances because when opportunity comes to leave poverty, when opportunity comes to leave certain neighborhoods and environments, people take them. They go. A poor man's even deserted by his friends. But wealth brings many new friends. Do you see how your station in life can either bring or snatch away opportunity? And that's a warning to us too for many of us who have plenty to not be flattered by our many friends because often too it is a result of our circumstances. You have no neighbors because you're poor. Do you realize what that means? I mean, think about what it, what the, what, what's in mind here when we think of neighbors, okay? Neighbors mean community. Community means help. Community means, you know, social infrastructure. Community means, um, you know, safety blankets and fallbacks and opportunities. And the community that we have around each other here in the church is a massive gift and blessing to us. Because when we falter or when we fall or when we find ourselves in financial difficulty, the scriptures tell us that there should not be a needy one even among us. And that framework you can, you can sort of impose onto a society and onto a culture, into a neighborhood, onto a city itself. That the community itself is what brings security, brings protection, brings opportunity. But when there's a massive disparity in wealth and poverty, and one has an opportunity to leave that community, he deserts. Makes sense, at least as we look at it. So are you starting to see why the Bible consistently and overwhelmingly leads with the idea of mercy? The Bible overwhelmingly leads with the idea of mercy and care and concern. As Edwards quoted those references in the beginning, as he quoted the sermon, rather, that Micah 6, 8, and these places that are saying, do you not know that the Lord loves justice? He says uh, in Matthew 23, 23, have you concerned yourself and considered the more weightier and the greater matters of the law to love mercy? The reason, at least one of the reasons, is because the Bible doesn't have just a simple black and white portrayal of what it is to be poor, how one finds themselves in poverty. It's very complex. The Bible understands the massive complexity that's involved in one's own poverty and in being poor, and the Bible leads with overwhelming mercy. It leads with overwhelming mercy. You realize just the um, infrastructures that were in place in uh, the nation of Israel I mean, every year, the edges of one's field could not be harvested. The edges of one's field just had to be for the poor, so the poor could glean and have food. And there wasn't a check station there to say, now, why are you in poverty? Let's check off our checklist here and make sure you can glean from the poor or from the edge of my field. Or every three years, an additional tithe was to be given, and scholars are... Uh, debate on how much that additional tithe was, but it could be as much as 20% as some commentators suggest. An additional 20% every three years just given for mercy to the poor. Oh, every seven years. Every seven years, your field was to not even be harvested, but all of it was to be given to the poor. Israel was a massive social government. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere weird. Don't worry. Let's look at one more principle. 
from this verse, one more principle of the idea of the causes and the results of poverty, and then we'll drive towards a conclusion that's not moralistic. Again, it says, the rich man uh, is a fortified city, but the poor are exposed, I think is a way to understand 1015. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, the poverty of the ruin is the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Uh, because they are poor and powerless, what they have is taken away from them. Do you see what the notion is in mind here in a strong city? A strong city uh, is an idea of protection, where the opposite than that of a strong city would be exposure, would be vulnerability, would be to lack protection, and so on. There's an example that I came across uh, in the last week. And uh, a couple years back, it was the 50th anniversary of uh, Legacy Emanuel Hospital up in North Portland. And there's these several stories that you can find that journalists and, and, and others did. There's actually some um, sociological uh, journal articles about what happened when Legacy Emanuel was built. And it was built in the, in the early 60s. And uh, what was there prior was this uh, African-American community of over 300 different homes and, and shops and storefronts and so on. And the city had planned over 10 years earlier that they were going to enact eminent domain. And they were going to take all of these houses and all these people and relocate them so that they could put the hospital in here. And there were civil engineers uh, and there were city planners. And this plan to move uh, this entire community to a different part of the city had been approved 10 years prior to the first community hearing about it. The plan had already been approved. It was already in the works. The contractors had already been lined up. And the first meeting was in July of early 1960s. And ground was broke in December, just a few months later. Entire families were uprooted and moved to a different part of the city. Now, there were some interviews with some ladies that uh, we're still alive, and this lady was now living in Park Rose, and she recounts the time uh, when she was living in this uh, neighborhood in North Portland, and she said she never learned how to drive, and she didn't need to learn how to drive, because she was able to walk to all of her friends' houses, and she was able to walk to the grocery store and walk to the different uh, shops and so on that she needed to, and when she was finally found out that she needed to be uprooted and, and, and moved, she was moved to Park Rose, which is nine miles away from the community that she had once known to a woman that didn't know how to drive. And she spoke in this interview 50 years later of longing and remembering friends that she had never seen again. And just wondering, I wonder how so-and-so is. I wonder how this person is doing. And there was no means for her to ever reconnect with these people that she was so deeply part of a community from, in, with. Now, I think that's an example of a, strong, of a lack of a, strong, of a strong city because of one's wealth and being exposed. And being exposed because of a lack of opportunity and exposed because of a kind of poverty to be uprooted and moved to an entire different part of the city against one's will and desire. And there's something I think that's helpful for us to realize that the book of Pro that, that God gives us in the scriptures, he doesn't just give us one book of wisdom, okay? He gives us three. He doesn't just give us the book of Proverbs, right? He also gives us the book of Job. 
And he also gives us the Song of Solomon. And what's interesting, I think, to us is that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the books are ordered in a different way than they are in our English Bible. And the book of Job comes right after the book of Proverbs. And I think that's God's way of saying, yes, the universe is ordered in a certain way. You do live in a moral universe. There is a right and wrong. There is, uh, uh, you do reap what you sow. There are consequences and so on. And yet there's the book of Job. And yet there is the way of looking at things that we just don't see with our eyes. We must trust the sovereign God who rules and reigns and does all things well. And it doesn't always accord with black and white. Because Remember, we read scriptures like, he who works his field will have plenty of bread. But remember also Proverbs 13, 23 says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Look, there's a lot of us in this room that have something. We have something. Maybe you're attractive, okay? But the poor, even their beauty can be snatched from them when you think of things like human trafficking. You have a home, but the poor can have it taken from them because there's this level of exposure that their poverty brings to them. That's why the Bible so often leads with mercy. We can't just look at the world in sluggard type categories. So what does this mean during Advent? Well, it means many things for us. Look, the gospel story is a story of the richest man who ever lived. He came down, he was born into poverty, he spent his life caring for the poor around him, and at the end of his life, he died a sacrificial death to assuage the wrath of God for his people. You notice that what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 is different than what he says in Matthew chapter 5, right? Matthew chapter 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But here, in Luke chapter 6, it just says, blessed are the poor, much more challenging and in-your-face to deal with. And the reason for that is they're probably just different sermons, right? It's the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Plain is what it's called in Luke chapter 6. But I think the point is that these kinds of messages, Jesus was probably giving these kinds of sermons all the time. This is what he was constantly talking about. These are summaries of what Jesus was saying, and so on and so forth. You realize that the first thing that Jesus does when he comes on the scene in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, you realize what the first thing Jesus reads when he picks up the Isaiah scroll. Listen. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up as it was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The shortest sermon in all of human history probably. And the eyes of the synagogue, it says, were fixed on him and they began to say to them, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. His life and his ministry was marked in care and concern and love 
for the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor around him. So ask yourself, my friends, as the first point of application and the first point of reflection, as a community, as our church, has our heart been more inclined to the poor around us in the last year? Has the ministry of Jesus in his care and concern and love for the poor, has that affected our own hearts and our own lives and our own behaviors in a more significant way in the last year? You realize that if the gathering church is going to be a true gospel church, it's going to offend both liberal and conservative If it's going to be a true gospel New Testament church, it's going to offend, our lives are going to offend both liberal and conservative. We'll offend the liberals because we're going to say, yeah, yeah, anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ is under the righteous wrath of God and all must repent and turn in faith and trust to him and him alone and those who do not remain under the wrath of God for all eternity. That offends the liberal conscience, the liberal mindset. And yet at the same time, we need to be a church that radically leads with justice and mercy. A church that cares for the physical needs around us. A church that understands the complex realities of poverty. That doesn't just have the mindset that says they're poor because they're lazy and they need to figure it out. But a church that leads with mercy and justice. A church that leads the way Jesus did, that proclaims good news to the poor And that'll offend the conservative churches around us. That'll offend the conservative mindset. But a true gospel preaching church, a true gospel church in its identity will be both of those things. And in some turn, will offend each of those camps. That's a good thing. Woe to us if everyone speaks well of us, right? Let me just give us three categories. Well, I'm not going to... My goodness gracious... I will email you this week three categories of giving, okay? I'll just tell you what they are and I'll send you the scriptures. There's a hierarchy though. The scriptures say we first ought to care for our family. It says we then ought to care for the church community and then we ought to care for the poor around us. And I'll give you a rationale of why I put family above church and the answer is in 1 Timothy 5.16. Okay. So, so far, I just skipped two pages. So far. This sermon has largely and could be heard as a sermon that sounds moralistic. I've put the weight on you. I've laid it down pretty hard. I've said, okay, so one could walk out of this room today and say, okay, what, what I need to now go do is I need to just go do and be more generous and caring to the poor. And if that's what we leave with, then it'll be a weight and it'll be a burden and it'll be unbearable and you'll fail by Tuesday afternoon. Instead, my friends, the second point of this sermon is we need to hear the good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to ask, why does Jesus say, blessed are the poor? Why is it a blessing to be poor? And Jesus is thinking. It seems to be saying they have a blessing that we don't have. I think it's this. Because When you don't have anything in life, when all that the world values, money, power, prestige, has been taken from you, 
then you can really and truly feel and embrace the only thing that truly matters. The poor have a way of feeling and sensing their need for Jesus in a way that riches dull us to. Riches and comfort and status and prestige, they dull us to feeling our true, utter need of Jesus. And the poor have that. The poor know. You know, the places where the gospel takes root more quickly and more often is in poor communities. Because they already know. We don't have anything. And by grace, this God, the king of the world who has everything, is going to freely come to us and radically give himself for us simply because he loves us of no merit of my own. Simply to the cross I cling. Luke 6.20 starts with him saying, looking at his disciples. So when Jesus reads, blessed are the poor, he's looking right at his disciples. And he says, blessed are the poor. Now think about that for a minute. We know not all of them are poor. We know they're not all poor. Some of them may be, but we know, for example, Matthew isn't. We know Matthew's not poor because he's a tax collector. And tax collectors often were dipping into the coffers and they they lived a pretty comfortable lifestyle. But Jesus looks at his disciples, he looks at Matthew and he says, blessed are the poor. And he's challenging them. He's challenging them to become poor in spirit. He's challenging them to not cling to their middle class status. He's challenging them to not cling to their religion. He's challenging them to become like the poor who value and have nothing except Jesus Christ alone. To become, as it were, to have everything stripped from you. To not lay hold of your money or your stuff or your status or your looks as of any value to you. But instead saying, become like the poor. Or he says in Matthew 19 or 18, one of them, he says, become like these little children. Come to me with faith that simply looks to me and trusts me and forgets all that lies behind. Because you truly do have this deep and dire need for me. You have this need for important significance and protection and so on and worth and value. And until you stop clinging to the things that you own and the things that have been given to you by opportunity and instead just cling to the things that are given you freely by grace, you'll never truly be free. You'll never truly be happy. You'll never truly be at rest. Blessed are the poor. Does the gospel save the rich? Of course it does. But religion, my friend, appeals to the able. Religion, duty, do this. Go care for the poor. Maybe we think, okay, I can go do that. I can go do a few more things and then I'll, I'll have a greater standing and status before God. That's absolutely not true. But the gospel appeals to the poor. Look. Consider Jesus. When he went to the temple as a young man to bring his temple offering, he brought two young pigeons. This was the, this was the cheapest offering that someone could buy. He was a poor man born into a poor family. Think of him. See him riding into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. He's on a borrowed donkey. See him at that last supper. He's in a borrowed house. 
He's in a borrowed room for the Last Supper. See him in that grave. He's in a borrowed grave even. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And do you see that this was truly the rich man? The true rich man went to the utter lengths of poverty for your sake. He gave away every right, every opportunity. The scriptures call him the suffering servant. He became a servant. And not just any servant. He became a servant that suffered. He became a servant that suffered for you so that he might bring you back to God. And through his poverty, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. His poverty, he limited everything. His opportunities, his choices, his wealth, his status, his, his prestige. He was the kind of man that men hid their faces from. He became utterly poor for your sake. And do you see that's what it costs to bring you back to God? That's what it costs to bring you back to the Father. The gospel, the gospel draws and it yearns and it brings close your heart. And when we become poor, we become poor spiritually. And we see our utter nakedness, empty-handedness before him. It should move us, my friends. It should move us to embrace the freeness that he gives us, the gospel that he gives us, to no longer cling to our stuff. You see how it's cyclical. When we come to the gospel first, when we come to the good news of Jesus Christ first, and that is what changes us and conforms us, and we see that the rich man became poor, and that's what we embrace, then the rest of our lives of caring for the poor around us, they're just a radical expression of the poverty that Jesus experienced for our sake. Because he calls us fellow heirs and sons and daughters in his kingdom. Last question. Has this good news of Jesus Christ, that the rich man became utterly poor for your sake, has that grabbed your heart more in the last year? Meditate on that for the next three weeks. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ a borrowed donkey, a borrowed upper room, a borrowed grave, and a borrowed manger. He was born and had nothing of his own, and he lived a life of utter poverty for your sake so that he could bring you back to the Father and you could be called a fellow heir in his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray, God, that we would be a people who are marked by radical generosity that we as a people would grow to not cling to the things that we have, but we would cling to the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Nothing in thy hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper this week, as we do every week. And um, the table is open to all who have repented of their sins, have been baptized. Uh, if that describes you and you're visiting us from another local church and uh, you'd like to partake with us, you're welcome. Uh, if you're not a Christian, if that doesn't describe you, I encourage you to not partake of the table. This is a celebration meal uh, with Jesus and his people. 
Uh, instead, consider the words that have been spoken and consider how uh, Jesus Christ, who was the truly rich one, gave himself up for you. And uh, he's calling you to turn to him in faith and trust. Uh, you can come up row by row. And one of the pastors, I think our brother Chris, will uh, lead us corporately in communion together.